Happy Sunday, everybody. Uh, happy uh, Halloween. I said 4th of July. I'm losing it. Happy Halloween, and I hope everybody's feeling great. I'm still getting ready for Halloween. Just getting started, really. Grogu's back there with me. He, uh, he's got his shark costume on, so he's, he's got a shark mask, so you're not going to see his eyeballs. Just his shark mask. And the funny thing about this, if, if I laugh, you guys, it's not that I'm laughing at you, per se. It's because I have a filter on TikTok right now that turns me into a vampire, which is really cool. But you guys over on, on YouTube and uh, and, um, and it failed, did it? This is not going to be a good day. Hang on. Hang on one second. We're having issues today. Technical issues. I'm going to start over with it over there. Technical issues. Roby took a header. He's not supposed to take a header, but he did. It's like a balancing act back here. Hang on, you guys. Let me get him up. All right. I thought it'd be cute to put a mask on him, but this is just not happening for me. Things are not selling in correctly. Hang on one second. Okay, all right. This thing shouldn't be this loose back here either. Let's see if I get it back there. Okay. All right, let's see how long that mask lasts. Anyway, uh, if you see me laughing, it's because I'm using a uh, vampire filter over on TikTok today. And it's just playing over at YouTube and, and Facebook. Okay, anyway, welcome. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We are 45 strong up and down the state, and that means we can help you. It may take us a couple days to get to you. California is this huge state, but we can't get to you. And uh, in the case is that we can't get to you right away, we do have psychics on staff. Just watching that. Make sure it doesn't go down. That can... Uh, phone you and talk to you about what may or may, may not be going on in, in your place of business or residence. And that, in, in most cases, they can simmer it down before we get out there. Okay, today is Sunday reading day. It's the day I read from a paranormal theme book. I'm waiting on a couple authors right now to, uh, excuse me, give me permission to read their books. And in the meantime, I wanted to read something today. And so I'm going back to a book we read last year about Lizzie Borden. And uh, I'll start reading that book today, and I'll be reading this for the next three or four Sundays. And then right after Thanksgiving, I'm going to shoot into, I'm going to switch into dark Christmas tales. Like, the, you know, Krampus and things like that. So I'll be reading from that at that point. Anyway, again, uh, TikTok, I see you coming up. I see the messages coming up. I cannot see. Okay, my old eyes just can't see it. Bad enough, I, got, I have some eye trouble going on. I got to wear my glasses. So until my eye settles down, so I really can't see. However, I know you're there, and I thank you all for being there over on TikTok. And please be sure, let me make sure I got this turned up, too. Make sure you guys can hear me. Okay, I'm going to bring you over. Hang on. Hang on one second. I'm trying to make sure stuff. There we go. Okay. Give me a second here. Okay. Let's make sure you got audio. Um, there we go. Yeah, okay. All right. <laughs> oh, I'm me right now. It's great. So I, I cannot see the messages. I see you coming up. I appreciate you coming up. I read, I, I read for an hour every Sunday. And uh, I'm doing a pre-read today because I'm going to have the next, next two or three days off. Halloween is a national holiday at my house. So I'm just getting going on, you know, decorating and, and all that. So, uh, yeah. Okay, anyway, so I'm going to be reading from Lizzie Borden today, and it's a book that we read almost two years ago, and I do have permission from the publisher and the author to read it, so I'm going to go ahead and start that, and I uh, hope you enjoy as much as I do. I do have some goals set. I have a, uh, for, for TikTok, I do have uh, 50 uh, llamas set up. If you guys want to do that, you don't have to do it. Uh, it's just, it'll help me keep the show on the air, because that's what I'm trying to do is build up my presence and keep the show on the air, and uh, the show is when I talk about it, it's all about paranormal stuff, paranormal stuff, and sometimes some newsy stuff, and we and we air Sunday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. Pacific at youtube.com forward slash at California Hots Radio, for you guys that are interested in it. We read it on Sundays, and then the rest of the week is paranormal topics like UFOs and things like that, so if, you, if that, and cryptids, and if that's an interest to you, come on over and check it out, Okay. 
I'm going for 4,000 likes over on TikTok. So if you guys could help me out with that, please double tap the screen. Please share this. Double tap the screen. Give me some thumbs up. Facebook, YouTube, if you haven't subscribed already on YouTube, please be sure to do so. Facebook, if you haven't um, followed yet, please be sure to do that as well. Show me some love, some thumbs up, um, happy faces and things like that because it puts us higher. And that works for TikTok too. It puts us higher in the FYP. And, um, and what that means is that we're able to get distributed out to more people that way, even on TikTok. So I really appreciate it. If you could do that for me, that would be great. Okay. In the meantime, while I'm reading today, if you like what you hear and see, please do, please double tap that screen. And like I said, my goal is 4,000 likes. So help me out with that. Okay. Every week I'm trying to go up 500 or 1,000 likes every time I do this read. So please, uh, Please do that for me if, if, you, if you see the need to. If you do have a paranormal thing going on or you, or you decide you want to follow us, not only on TikTok, but on all the other networks like Twitch as well, please be sure to check us out at California Haunts, California Haunts Radio, Sacramento Sears, S-E-E-R-S, over on Facebook. We are California Haunts over on TikTok. We are California Haunts over at Twitter, Cal Haunts at Twitch, and Ghosty Gal, all lowercase, and Instagram. And also, we do have a California Haunts Meetup page, so that's California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team at Meetup. And we do have, um, what was I going to say? There's the Meetup page. I forget. Oh, Patreon. We have a California Haunts Radio Patreon. Check out our Patreon page as well, and that's under California Haunts Radio. Okay, that being said, I'm going to start reading. I'm going to read for a little under an hour because I got I got, I got a slow start on this. But, uh, yeah, let's get the show on the road, and I think you guys are going to enjoy this, and I will read uh, until maybe 45 minutes today. I'll read out of this book, and then we'll, we'll take it from there. But uh, please be sure, if, if you like what you hear today, to double tap that screen and share it, okay? All right, here we go. Let me get this moved over here. I got more cords, guys. Okay, where we go? Okay, let me get this set up. I have an old ancient tablet. It's ancient like me. Okay. <laughs> I think it's funny. I look over here, I got a vampire. Look over there, it's my face. It's kind of funny in a lot of ways. Okay, again, it's 3.43 p.m. Pacific right now. I'm going to go ahead and read until like 4.40, something like that. So at least we'll get close to an hour in. I just want to make sure, or I'll reach out 4.30. I want to make sure I get within that hour. It's not like I have a deadline. It's just it's easier to upload through StreamYard for the main audience because the show is usually not until 6. And again, I'm pre-recording this. Okay, so the book is The History and Haunting of Lizzie Borden by Rebecca F. Pittman. Now, I do have permission from Rebecca Pittman, and I also have permission from the publisher to read this book. So you're going to see my face get really bright over there on the regular screen. Okay. So here we go. Okay. All right, let me get to chapter one. Lots of acknowledgments and stuff here, this book. Okay, here's the prologue and away we go. Like I said, I'll read till about 4.30 p.m. Pacific and then I'll call it a day. So, prologue. There may never be a final resolution of the Borden Hatchet murders of August 4th, 1892 in Fall River, Massachusetts. The tantalizing trail of clues and documentation as old 24th century armchair sleuths are left to forge through. Yet, yet the people who say there is nothing new to bring to light are incorrect. Actually, there is much. It is hiding between the lines of trial testimony in dusty newspapers and within the invaluable modern use of technology. The mind of a sociopath is fascinating, albeit a, a bit frightening. They go through life with a sense of entitlement, seeing people as obstacles to their goals, who must be manipulated or removed. Guilt and remorse are non-existent. It is a chilling thing to watch. I grew up next door to someone who had just that blend of personality traits, and I watched the trail of destruction left in her wake. That perspective of a borderline personality disorder gave me a unique insight into the writing of this book. These people do exist. Lizzie was human, 
flawed in many ways, as we all are. I believe losing her mother at such a young age began a fear of abandonment, which Emma, her older sister, tried desperately to eradicate. Andrew, her father, followed suit until Lizzie saw herself as entitled to a life without obstacles. Was she spoiled? Yes. Did a hand in her face set off feelings of panic and depression? Yes. Would anything stop her from getting what she felt was her due? No. This book is written from the facts born of, from police interviews, inquest, preliminary hearing, and superior court trial testimonies, newspaper reports, and research. None of the recent dialogue has been tampered with. I have, as a means, provided atmosphere, added some background and trivial dialogue based on the above-mentioned reports. Some of the people introduced here for the first time took a great deal of hunting down, but I think you will admit it was worth it. Some of what I'm about to show you is a reasonable deduction if you look at the trail of breadcrumbs and connect the dots. The book, this book contains new evidence showing how the famous handleless hatchet was broken, and in just a few seconds as well. The burned roll of paper found in the kitchen stove the morning after the murders, or the morning of the murders, will also be confirmed through photographs. The trials in this case are just as fascinating as the murders. The artful questioning put forth by the trial attorneys is sometimes masterful, other times patently transparent, but always revealing. That many witnesses were rehearsed, polished, and asked to lie is without a doubt. You learn as much from the missing words as you do from what made it onto the stenographer's page. All grammatical and spelling errors found in the testimonies and dialogue of the investigative parties has been retained for accuracy. As a paranormal historian, I have researched and written about the most haunted historic places in America. Paranormal events happen every day. The final section of this book is dedicated to the haunting associated with the Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast Museum at 92 2nd Street in Fall River, Massachusetts. Listed in the top 10 most haunted places in America, it would seem the walls that witnessed the bloody tragedy of that sultry summer day do, at times, play back their memories. Read what the staff and guests report as ongoing paranormal events in this 124-year-old home. Here, then, is a tale stranger than fiction that spread beyond the gate at 92 2nd Street and up onto the hill where the Borden sisters locked their doors against the ubiquitous whispers and gossip. The strange occurrences that surrounded Lizzie's life on Fred Street show an unsettled mind that became increasingly unhinged. This is a telling of one of America's biggest unsolved murder mysteries. It is the unauthorized diary of Lizzie Borden, a woman with her face pressed up against the window of a world she could not enter. Rebecca F. Pittman, November 2016. Chapter 1. All Hallows' Eve. Maplecroft, Fall River, Massachusetts, October 31st, 1893. One second. Double tap that screen, TikTok. Double tap that screen. Help me out. I'm trying to build up my presence on TikTok so we can do it, so I can do more shows with psychics and Karen Clark and stuff. So please feel free to double tap that screen. I'd really appreciate it. I would like to get 4,000 likes, okay? Same thing with Facebook. Come on, guys. Show me some love. Show, show me some love. Please double tap that screen. Come away from the window, Lizzie. The voice was tired. A melancholy resolution turning it once into a flat line of emotion. Emma Borden looked and felt much older than her 43 years. A gaunt woman with sad eyes, she had endured much in the past year and three months. She had returned home from a short-lived vacation with friends to find her father and stepmother butchered. Their autopsy bodies packed in ice and laid out on the family dining room table. Her coveted privacy was sacrificed to the glaring spotlight of thousands of strangers gathered outside the house and a score of policemen and newspapermen inside the house. Blood was splattered across the wallpaper and woodwork. There had been no time to grieve, as she immediately took over the care of a prostrated sister who could not face the, who could not face the music. Within moments of entering her home at 92 2nd Street, Emma was immediately interviewed by the police. Her private things searched through, and the, main, and the mantle of responsibility etched firmly upon her furrowed brow. The tears flowed only when she was finally closeted alone 
in her room at night and the morning and in the morning she wiped her father's blood from the parlor door lizzie come away from the window emma urged more emphatically she glanced past her younger sister's hand holding aside the lace curtain of the south-facing sitting room on the second floor of their new home on french street outside the gaslight street lamps punched ragged holes in the darkness their soft halos of light eliminated the small shapes darting about the neighborhood trees. Candlelight flickered through the carved eyes and mouths of the macabre pumpkins and gourds peering through the window glass of the mansions lining the street. It was Old Hallow's Eve in Fall River, Fall River, Massachusetts, and the money gentry of the hill was enjoying the merriment. Lizzie Borden ignored her sister's abdomen. Took me a second. She stood transfixed at the window, eyes focused on the three-storied house caddy corner from hers. Carriages were arriving in front of the Brayton's home, their lanterns adding to the party atmosphere, as revelers in fancy dress spilled from their open doors. Their laughter carried on the night air, tightening the knot of the warrior's stomach, until the familiar feeling of panic pulsed in Lizzie's head. Several of the partygoers turned to stare over at the house across the street. Its turret, topped with a conical witch's hat roof, seemingly ironically suitable to its inmate. That's Lizzie Borden's house, they said in excited whispers. And then, seeing the silhouette at the upper window, turned and hurried up the sidewalk to the party. Emma pulled her from the window, a familiar feeling of dread sweeping over her. They had only been living at 7 French Street for a little under two months. She had hoped the new furnishings and prestigious address would give her sister the peace that had eluded her at her father's home on Second Street. Yet Lizzie had continued to complain as she watched the neighbor, watched neighbor after neighbor pass their front door without stopping to welcome the sisters to their private enclave. There were no calling cards left on the silver tray waiting expectantly by the front door. No flowers, no pastries, or invitations. Though the neighbors peered at the gable structure from beneath parasols and whispered to each other from behind gloved hands, they passed them by. The arrival of bands of curious onlookers began occurring from the moment the newspapers announced the Borden sisters' purchase of the home on the hill. Fall River's most elite setting and the address of the who's who of that New England hamlet. It sat looking down, both geographically and figuratively, on a city built upon the backs of cotton mill workers. People walked by, drove by, even stood unabashedly, pointing at the board of sister's new home, with very looks of awe. Only a few days earlier, two families had moved into the newly remodeled Andrew J. Borden home at 92 Second Street, where the double murders had taken place. Lizzie and Emma had seen the alter had seen the alterations. The fireplace in Lizzie's bedroom was, at some point, walled over. Perhaps Lizzie had seen to it. Lewis Hall, the owner of the livery stable across the street from the Borden house, and William B. Peckham, a grocer, his wife and three daughters unpacked their boxes, moved into the two newly created living spaces, and became Lizzie and Emma's first tenants. For both men, it was a pragmatic move, placing them within walking distance of their businesses. Whether they grew accustomed to the ongoing spectators gawking at the infamous murder house is unknown. Both men had witnessed the harrowing events played out there on August 4th, 1892. Did they walk with trepidation through the hallways and double-check all those locks? The innocent shadows caught from the corner of their eyes caused their nerves to twitch. To add to the circus-like atmosphere that had ridden into the hill, along with the Borden sisters' moving carts, came hacks carrying drummers from out of town. For a few coins extra, the traveling salesman could pay a rented carriage driver to carry them by, by the house on French Street and hear a penny dreadful retelling of the murders of Andrew and Abby Borden. Yes, sir, gents. There she sits, Lizzie Borden. She was acquitted of the crimes, but there are tongues still wagging somewhere someone knows. That says that maybe someone got away with murder. The eyes would then dutifully follow the outline of windows, hoping for a glimpse of the infamous woman about whom they had read so much. After a few minutes' hedonism, the driver would continue. Next up, over on High Street, we'll see the home of Alfred D. Butterworth, 
Mr. Butterworth hung himself from a tree in a field only four months before the Borden murders, leaving behind a wife and family. Maybe money don't buy happiness, Jets. The newspaper headlines and dubious celebrity of their newest neighbor brought the Borden sisters a few fans, or brought the Borden sisters a few fans from the addresses surrounding them. The increased traffic, both by foot and buggy, was an unwelcome invasion among the manicured lawns and pristine Victorian homes. The sound of thuds against the siding of the house suddenly sounded from below. Emma and Lizzie hastened to windows. One overlooking the east side of the house, the other looking to the front. Lizzie saw the small figures of several children darting across the street from her side yard. They were dressed in makeshift costumes, most appearing to be oversized cast-offs from their parents' closets. Long, lapping coat sleeves and trailing dresses fitted about in the October night. Annie E. Smith, the Borden sister's 29-year-old maid, appeared at the entrance to the upstairs sitting room. Miss Borden, she said, directing her statement to Emma. There is boys and girls outside pelting the house with eggs. Do you want me to tell Joseph to run them off? Joseph H. Terrell was a sister's coachman who lived on the property. He was 37 years old, four years Lizzie's senior, and hailed from Rhode Island. Just then, the stinging sound of thrown sand skewed across the glass window panes. Something hit the roof and rolled down. Shrieks could be heard coming from the small shadows racing to the safety of towering elms and maple trees skirting the border's property. The maid looked at Lizzie with panicked eyes, the infamy of her mistress, perhaps becoming clearer with each assault. The shrill sound of the doorbell split a short-lived respite of silence. It twilled on without cessation. They put a pin in the bell, miss, Annie said, wringing her hands. Her breathing was coming in short pants. It's, it's, it's a mischief thing they do. They help you all open the door, and then, then they throw flour in your face, she said, more to convince herself of the harmless, harmlessness of the onslaught than to offer solace to the sisters who were both showing strain. Emma left the room, her shoulders bowed beneath the weight of the past two years. Lizzie heard her steps on the stairs leading down to the front hall. Moments later, the incessant shrill stopped, leaving their ears ringing. Annie and Lizzie waited in the stillness and listened. Moonlight shone through the lace curtains, throwing fluttering, throwing a fl fluttering ghost-like images across the polished wood floor. Seconds later, she heard it, rising in the air, still from the strand of bushes beneath the windows. Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave her mother forty wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father forty-one. Her throat constricting, Lizzie turned to the window nearest where she heard the voices. Three small girls and a young boy streaked up French Street and careened around the corner of Belmont, disappearing into the darkness. She stood there. The sounds of music and laughter spilling from the open windows of the Brayton house, where the old Hallow's Eve party was full in full swing. Her head filled with a thrumming noise, like the sound of water rushing in through her ears. The panic started in her stomach and reached up to her heart in a vice-like grip as her breathing became labored. She gripped the lace curtain, nearly pulling it from the wrought iron rod. Miss Borden? Annie asked in a frightened voice, as she watched the metamorphosis before her. Her mistress's cheeks refused with a red tinge, and her lips had gone white. Old Lizzie heard were the words ringing in her ears. Lizzie Borden took an axe. Chapter 2 I don't know who she is. If you like what you're hearing, TikTok, double tap that screen, double tap that screen. Show me some love. Show me some love. For Lizzie Andrew Borden, the world was an uncertain place, one fraught with rules and boundaries over which she had no control. Excuse me. The realization that life would always have a hand before her face, blocking her way to things which she felt entitled began at the vulnerable age of two. 12 Ferry Street was a crowded home in 1853. Generations of families would often reside under one roof. Andrew J. Borden carried his new bride, Sarah A. Morse, 
Sarah A. Morris over the threshold after their 1845 Christmas Eve wedding at the Central Congregational Church. For Sarah, a life that began beneath the ethereal glow of Christmas bells must have seemed magical. Her young husband was establishing himself in the cabinet-making business, as she did work as a seamstress. As Andrew's fortunes grew, along with his real estate holdings, his family followed, followed suit. On March 1, 1851, his first daughter, Emma Lenora Borden, was born. Andrew's small family now resided elbow to elbow with Andrew's father, Abraham, his wife, Phoebe, their youngest daughter, Phoebe Ann, and their older daughter, Lorana, along with her husband, Hiram Harrington. Emma, at the impressionable age of four, witnessed her first, but certainly not her last, family funeral. Andrew's sister, Phoebe Ann, died within the walls of 12 Ferry Street at the age of 27 in August 1855. Andrew's sister, Lorana, and her husband, Hiram, moved across the street to 13 Ferry Street about the same time. For young Emma, it must have felt like a frightening change in the household to lose two aunts at once, albeit was one a few yards away. The sadness of Phoebe's passing was quickly replaced by the joy of a new addition to Andrew and Sarah's family. On May 3, 1856, daughter Alice Esser was born. Five-year-old Emma looked into the bassinet with mixed emotions at this new arrival, who was wrapped in her, who wrapped her small hand around her sister's finger. Emma had been an only child for five years, a position some adolescents find hard to forego. She may have been filled with joy, however, at the prospect of having this new little playmate. Whatever Emma felt, it was short-lived. At just under two years of age, young Alice died of dropsy on the brain. For the second time in only three years, the funeral wreath was hung at the door. The mirrors draped in black, and the sound of sobbing echoed throughout the small house. On, Ju on July 19, 1860, Andrew's third and last child was born, a daughter. He gave the baby his name, perhaps realizing a boy was not in the making. Thus... Lizzie Andrew Borden made her triumphant entry into the world and changed the course of history. For the next three years, life in a congested little house on Ferry Street saw several changes. Phoebe Davenport Courier moved in, a relative of Andrew's through his mother's Davenport side. Perhaps a crying baby was not Phoebe's thing, as she departed soon after Lizzie's birth. There were also rumors at this time that Sarah Borden, Andrew's wife, was suffering from severe headaches and bouts of behavior causing acquaintances to label her as peculiar. In photographs of Sarah, we see an intense woman with an almost wild-eyed fierceness. Her brother, John Vinicum Morris, has the same penetrating stare in photographs taken of him. Whatever plagued Sarah is uncertain. Tragically, in March 1863, she died at 39 after succumbing to uterine congestion and disease of the spine. Lizzie was only two, Emma 12, and Andrew a widower at 40. In early images of Andrew, you see a man with a grim set mouth, his visage showing a determination to overcome his father's fall from the board of fortune. With unrelenting guile and business acumen, he set about to create his own fortune, beginning with joining William L. William M. Almy in an enterprise that would set the men up for the rest of their lives. Together, they purchased a property at South Main and Animal Streets and opened a furniture business, which later included undertaking services and coffin building. Borden and Almy opened in March 1845. The bond between the two men was ironclad. William gave his daughter Rachel Andrews' name. Rachel Borden, Rachel Borden Almy, and Lizzie Andrew Borden were classmates and friends. The Almy Borden bond followed the two men to their graves. Their family plots at Oak Grove Cemetery are side by side. Emma would say in later years that she had stood by her mother's deathbed and acquiesced to one promise her mother asked of her to always watch over baby Lizzie. This was a promise Emma Borden fulfilled, fulfilled beyond all human endurance until the day she was lowered into her grave. Emma. By the time adolescence merged into, into teenage years, Emma 
Lenore Borden had seen much sadness. A weight of responsibility had been placed with unrelenting heaviness upon her young shoulders. She may have taken over much of the care of baby Lizzie well before her mother's death, as any spinal disease probably made lifting the baby impossible. While the 1860 federal census shows a servant by the name of Caroline T. Gray residing at the ferry house, it would seem she had her hands full caring for such a larger household. It is doubtful the care and rearing of children were included in her made-of-old work description. Emma's education was unremarkable. There are no records sounding her grades or extracurricular activities. As she was a shy and retired adult, it may be assumed she was one of the same makeup at an early age, choosing the back row in school as opposed to the front, dutifully in her studies, but praying not to be called to the chalkboard in front of the eyes of watchful peers. Lizzie was nine years of Emma's junior. She may have followed closely in her big sister's shadow within the closed walls of Ferry Street, but their personalities could not have been more different. Yet, Lizzie stated during her inquest testimony that Emma had been more like a mother to her as she grew up. I always went to her because she was older and had the care of me after our mother died. Another mother was to shortly enter Emma and Lizzie's life. Andrew married again when Lizzie was five and Emma 14. Abby Dufree Gray was 37 when she became the second Mrs. Borden. For Abby, a spinster by the era's reckoning, she may have given up hope of finding love. For Andrew, a widower with two young daughters and an empire to build, a wife to oversee things and be female influence for, the, for a daughter entering her teenage years was pragmatic. There may have been romantic feelings between the couple, although a child from the union was never forthcoming. It was soon after, in April 1867, that Emma, at the age of 16, was sent away to Norton, Massachusetts, to the Wheaton Female Seminary for a year and a half. The four terms for which she stayed came at the cost of $382.25. The rumors that Andrew Borden was miserly with his daughters is not borne out, as here he spends what, what was not a nominal amount in that area, in that era, to ensure his oldest daughter's education. For the two sisters, this period of Emma's only absence from Lizzie's life since her birth must have been a traumatic effect on both of them. Emma's role as little mother and housekeeper was suddenly unserved by a strange woman who lacked her mother's fire and intensity. Fiery as a burden was a phrase used often in the Fall River, and it was usually well-founded. Now, Emma was away from home for the first time with only a few Fall Riverites, including a friend Maddie Brigham has familiar faces. Does she feel kicked out once Abby arrived? Was this the beginning of her hatred of her new stepmother? Lizzie. Lizzie was also beginning a new education, as at the age of five, she began elementary school. She was still living at home, doubtless lonely for Emma, and trying to adapt to this new female presence in her house, who suddenly was calling the shots. I'll buy it. I'll buy it. As it in an ineffectual, mild way. Lizzie called her mother, perhaps at her father's urging. It was all so different. Life held no consistency for her, no safety net. She could be batted about like a bad, like a bad bit in everyone's will but their own, but her own. The uncertainty of who would be in her life and who would disappear just as suddenly was frightening. Losing her mother at such a young age had brought about a fear of abandonment. In later years, this fear would resurface when people ignored her. Or she felt control over her life slipping away. At times, it became an all-encompassing panic. At other times, it exploded into rage. Lizzie began her freshman year at the Fall River High School in September of 1875. The school was located on the hill and was perhaps Lizzie's introduction to the address that would become her obsession throughout the rest of her life. The city's wealthy sons and daughters graced the halls of this former mansion. It was her first real taste of class segregation. Lizzie began, oops, here we go, and the burden needed to fit in. According to Boston Herald, on August 7, 1892, 
Lizzie, as a scholar, was not remarkable for brilliancy, but she was conscientious in her studies, and with application always held a good rank in her class. Later in life, Lizzie was often described as a brilliant conversationalist, mostly due to her voracious reading. According to acquaintances, Lizzie was quite sensitive and reticent when it came to making new acquaintances. Her reserve, her nemesis, during the 1892-1893 double murder trials of her father and stepmother, seems to have been in place at an early age. Friends later remarked it had always been her manner. Other girls giggled and flirted. Lizzie tended to hang back and watch through distrustful eyes. A pattern began in young Lizzie's life that would follow her into her adult years. Her desire to be seen as worthy and perfect are evident in her routine of putting things in which she didn't excel. She did not finish high school, perhaps feeling the pain of falling short of excellent grades, or from watching from the sidelines as other girls were invited to dances, picnics, and house parties from which she was excluded. Invitation after invitation to parties on the hill would find their way into her classmates' mailboxes, but not hers. Her testimony at her inquest concerning her father's final minutes with her is prophetic. She stated she found him in a sitting room after his return from the post office. All right, quick warning. All right, we are at PG-13, bordering on our channel. So if you hear something that makes you uncomfortable or that you don't like, please don't go to the uh, TikTok police or anything like that. Just just move on. There's, 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 there's other things you could be looking at, okay? I don't want to get, you know, shut down over a book that I, I have permission to read, all right? It's Halloween time. This is a good book to read for this time of year. So please just move on if you feel uncomfortable by the descriptions in this book, all right? That goes for Facebook and, and YouTube as well and Twitch. When she asked if there's any mail, she claims he answered none for you. Lizzie also quit other things in life if they became too difficult or if she felt she had fallen short. It was rumored she once, while teaching Sunday school to some Chinese children, became distraught when they would not mind her and walked out, never to return to teaching. She would hold organization posts for only a short time, once again quitting if she felt she was underappreciated or it did not fulfill her need for social advancement. Double tap that screen, please. Double tap that screen. I'm trying to build up my presence. I'm trying to shoot for 4,000 likes today. Lizzie was not without friends, however. Some of the acquaintances she made in high school stayed with her for many years. Two bequests in Lizzie's will went to Adelaide B. Whip, Addie, and to Lucy S. McCumber, showing her lasting friendship with these young classmates. Other friends came from church associations, daughters of her father's business acquaintances and relatives. Adelina Maria Allen, Addie, was a classmate friend of Lizzie's and later became her neighbor on the hill. Addie, on June 2nd, 1881, married at what was called a brilliant wedding and quickly acclimated to the status of a Fall River club woman and a member of numerous social welfare organizations. She moved into a newly constructed Queen Anne-style home on Rock Street in 1892, the year of the murders. Later in life, Lizzie became friends with Addie's daughter, Edith, who was quoted as saying there were rumors that Lizzie stole some things from the local stores when she really didn't need to. I don't know whether Lizzie was guilty or not. She had a very good and influential lawyer who was able to keep information out. The rumors of, of Lizzie stealing would follow her from 2nd Street up onto the hill in her later life. Louise Holmes Stilwell, Lulie, maintained her friendship with Lizzie for many years. Her uncle was Charles Jarvis Holmes, a friend of Andrew Borton's, and one who would stand by Lizzie's side throughout her long legal battles. His wife, Mary, would spend considerable time at the Borden house after the murders, supporting Lizzie and Emma, and even overseeing the police searches of the home. Their daughters, Mary Louisa and Anna Covell Holmes, were Lily's cousins and part of the group of girls who were to vacation with Lizzie and Marion during the time of the murders. Lily kept a prolific diary during her high school years, where boys dating and other teenage raptures were reported. As she describes who is flirting with whom, Lizzie's name never appears. She is conspicuously, conspicuous, conspicuous, she is absent. I'm just, 
from the names mentioned, attending parties, weddings, and outings. Lizzie was to witness another grand wedding when the same Lily married John Hiram Hondick, Nevius of New York, and another of the elaborate receptions that made Fall River newspaper's social set column headlines. Lizzie presented her with a set of delf-like sweetmeat dishes, which are on display today at the Fall River Historical Society and Lizzie Borden Museum. Lizzie attempted to learn how to play the piano during her high school days. With her usual doggedness and focus, she attached, she attacked the keys, determined to become an aficionado of the ivories. This did not last long. She quit when it became apparent she would not achieve the perfection for which she aspired. It may have also required more dedication to practice than she was ready to sacrifice. Her friend's diaries during this time were filled with entries of parties, splendid slang, tennis matches, seaside adventures, and travel. Lizzie escaped into a world of words. It was said she brought books. She bought books, not by the volume, but by the armful. Friends visited Lizzie at her home at 92 Second Street, but the feeling is not one associated with frivolity and fun. Lily's diary reporting on her few trips to see Lily's see Lizzie during their high school days, stated that Lizzie was rather tired, rather blue, and real miserable. These statements were made during different visits, and within one month of Lizzie's 16th birthday, a time when most girls are planning a party and looking at boys with new interests. Three of Lizzie's friends had been neighbors during her young days on Ferry Street. Elizabeth Murray Johnson, who was to receive a cryptic letter from Lizzie on the day of the murders, as sisters Mary Ella and Annie Elizabeth Sheen, who would marry well and become Fall River socialites, as respectively Mrs. George S. Brigham, yeah, Brigham and Mrs. William Lindsay Jr. Annie remained Lizzie's friend for the rest of her life, her correspondence with Lizzie giving much insight into a troubled mind. Annie rose high in her social cir circles to the pinnacle of which was her presentation to the Queen of England. That Lizzie watched her friends marry, decorate lavish mansions and summer homes, travel in elite circles, and become mothers must have colored her view of the world, as she saw it from the lace curtains of her bedroom amidst the businesses and noise of Second Street. These girls have lived in the same working class neighborhood as she, yet they were living her dream. Her father's money and name carried with it a clout that should have unlocked doors for her but they remained as barred as the triple locks on the Borden front home, front door. Her location in Second Street's business district was a deterrent to the young bows of social breeding who may have sought her. She may have been oblivious that her, that her black spells, sullenness, and frequent outbursts of anger were also walls to her popularity. Lizzie entered her adult life with one unrelenting aspiration, to become the elite set of young women who belonged on the hill. She was, after all, a Borden. Her ancestors had played a part in the town's prosperity. Her father was one of the wealthiest men in Fall River, with a giant building named after him that took, off half, took up half a city block. Her Borden cousins lived on the hill. She was doing volunteer work through the Central Congregational Church, rubbing elbows with the city's wealthiest matrons, joining each committee, such as the Fruit and Flower Mission, Christian Young Women's Temperance Movement, and the others, all in an effort to be noticed and welcomed into that coveted circle. Lizzie's church work finally bore fruit on June 21st, 1890, when she was included, along with two other boarded ladies, to join some of the other church volunteers for a grand tour of Europe. That the original boarded girls lived on the hill, along with other money passengers, would have caused Lizzie a dizzying feeling of fun finally having arrived. Her traveling companions, Anna H. and Carrie L. Borden, were granddaughters of Colonel Richard Borden and hence part of the elite branch of the Borden family tree. The Cunard Line, streamer, Cynthia, the same steamship line that owned the Titanic, sailed from Liverpool, England in June 1890, one month before Lizzie's 30th birthday. For the next 18 weeks, Lizzie toured the elegant cities of Europe and witnessed firsthand how the other half lived. The more prominent Mrs. Borden's took to the streets of Paris and Rome as young ladies. 
to the manor born. Lizzie watched as trunks and hat boxes were filled with the latest designs by Worth and other maestros of fashion. She navigated through the confusing array of silverware surrounding the fine china plates at the fashionable restaurants they frequented by watching the other ladies closely. This is where she belonged. This was her birthright. From the Blarney Castle in Ireland to Loch Lomond in Scotland, from Shakespeare's Stratford-upon-Avon to Canterbury Castle in Kent, Amsterdam to Heidelberg, the Alps to Florence, Milan to, Fran to Venice, Paris to the Tower of London, Lizzie collected postcards of her favorite sites and purchased a few fashions at the Belle Epoque. I hope I said that right. Epoque? that she could afford. Each city unfolded its culture before her thirsty eyes. The museums and galleries were no longer just on the pages of her books at home, but here, where her eager fingers could touch them. At times, it must have seemed surreal to walk the crowded European streets where the fashions and languages wrapped around her mind like gossamer. The return voyage in October of 1890 shows, shows a Lizzie coming down from a high. The tour is over, and perhaps she felt during a trip that the other girls, though polite, were not as ingratiating toward her as she had hoped. Perhaps it was her imagination. The sinking feeling at the thought of the bleak house waiting for her was not imagined. It was all too real. Anna Borden shared a cabin with Lizzie during the sea voyage. During Anna's testimony at the murder trial, she was asked, you are, I believe, not a relative of the prisoner. No, sir, Anna replied, the indelible stamp of hierarchy plant, firmly planted. Lizzie and Anna showed a great-great-grandfather, making them third cousins. Anna went on to say she had known Lizzie about five years, a time that coincided with Lizzie's confirmation into the Central Congregational Church. It was indeed through Lizzie's Christian endeavors she had wrangled a grand tour ticket and a stab at entering the circle wagons on the hill. Annie was asked to testify to a conversation she and Lizzie has had, had had in their cabin on the voyage home. She related that Lizzie said, Okay, I have got a low battery on TikTok. Why it ran off, I'll run down, never know. So let me see. Well, we're just about done. So I'm going to continue a low battery mode for the next couple minutes. I should be able to wrap uh, really quickly here. I was going to go till 4.30 anyway, so my batteries, I don't know why it went down so fast on the phone. Maybe a ghost in here. All right, so uh, she regretted the necessity of returning home after she had had such a happy summer because the home that she was about to return to was such an unhappy home. To belong to the Fall River Inner Circle upon her return was perhaps the wish that Lizzie made at the famed Trivia Fountain in Rome as she stood with her back to the 85-foot-high sculpture, held her breath, and tossed a coin over her shoulder into the water. That wish would never be realized. On November 18, 1890, members of the Central Congregational Church threw a large welcome-home party for the Fall River Girls, who had just returned from the Grand Tour. Seventy guests were waited on by the young men at the church, and the returning travelers were spoiled beyond their wildest dreams. Anna Borden stood and regaled the crowd with a few stories of their travels and thanked the committee warmly for the wonderful party. As the orchestra played, the guests departed. President Booth asked permission and receiving it, escorted the two Mrs. Borden's home, while the young man named Fred Pierce escorted Lizzie to her address because it was a polite thing to do. If Lizzie had hoped to be a part of the social in-crowd that traveled that summer to Europe, had hoped, okay, had hoped to be a part of the social aid crowd that traveled this summer to Europe or to ensure her place within the carefully sewn folds of the fall river nobility, she was to be let down and let down with a crash. Upon returning home to the austere house in the midst of businesses and stables and a few scattered houses, she waited for party invitations from the girls of the cruise, but none came. Though she had been the secretary for the fruit and flower mission before the trip, she did not return to that post upon her return. A letter was written by Mrs. William C. Deval, Jr. on April 25, 1892, to her daughter two months before the trip, listing the girls who were included 
in the garage for a party, summed up Lizzie's place in society. This woman, who knew everyone who was anyone in Fall River, wrote Nellie Ellen Shove, Elizabeth Lizzie A. Borden, I do not know who she is, parentheses, Anna H. Borden, and Carrie Caroline L. Borden are going to Europe with Miss Hannah D. Mowry this summer. Highlighted. I do not know who she is. All right, guys, we're going to stop there. We're at Chapter 3. I'm going to shut it down for the day. And I want to thank everybody for coming, for listening. And I will. Um, this week I'm going to be off until Wednesday because it's Halloween and big celebrations at my house for Halloween. I'm just getting started on that stuff. So, uh, like I said, I'll be off till Wednesday. However, I do have shows lined up for you. Um, t- tomorrow night is going to be Jason Offit, and he's going to be talking about flying cryptids and all kinds mm-hmm. of cool stuff. And then Tuesday is going to be Hawaiian Ghost Legends with Joe Punahou. Punahou, Punahou, my good friend. And then Wednesday I'll be back live. So we're going to have a really cool show on Wednesday, and I'm looking forward to being back live. So for you guys on TikTok, if you want to see that stuff, 6.30 p.m. Pacific. Every show is at 6.30 p.m. Pacific, unless otherwise noted. And that would be at youtube.com forward slash at California Haunts Radio. You can check us out over there. So without further ado, I'm going to let you go over here on TikTok because the battery on the phone is running low. But thank you all for coming. Thank you all for joining me. I really appreciate it. And uh, hope to see you soon. Thank you very much. Okay. Thanks, everybody, for coming. And, again, um, I will be on the chat tomorrow night. I'll be doing stuff on TikTok the next the next couple of days, but uh, I'm going to be off uh, Monday, Tuesday, so I can celebrate, get ready for Halloween and stuff. That's why I did a pre-record tonight. So thank you guys, and let me see where we're out in time. Cool. Okay, I'm going to shut up before I run out of time here. But thank you guys so much, and I will see you on Wednesday live. Have a great one. Let me cue this up. I hate my glasses. I can't see. Here you go.